Well, good morning. It's good to be with you here today at Exponential. Uh, what a privilege. I, I love your pastor. Uh, we've been friends for a couple of years. We were uh, connected through a mutual, uh, f- a mutual friend uh, who, when I was a youth pastor 30 years ago, he was in my youth ministry and now is in ministry in Chambersburg. He's a pastor there. And, and uh, he, he said to uh, Gilbert and I that, hey, you, you guys get to, you need to get to meet each other. And so uh, Gilbert and I have been uh, friends during that time. We've collaborated in some different ministry, and I know he'll be with some of some of my dear friends and some of the people involved in our ministry while he's in Costa Rica, actually. So, uh, so again, my name is Mike Carter, and I was a local church pastor for about 34 years before uh, before I stepped into my current role, leading this mission organization called Concentric. Uh, and, and concentric is about equipping. What we do is we equip leaders around the globe, indigenous leaders, local leaders, in living out the Great Commission. Uh, we, we say we want to we be uh, creating Jesus-centric disciple-making movements to the nations. And so we're in about 130 countries around the globe, and I get the opportunity to travel. And you can see this picture uh, here on the screen right now. Um, that, that picture is of uh, friends uh, that I was with in uh, Turkey back uh, in March of last year. It's hard to believe, man, it's almost a year. But we, uh, while we were there, you can look at these slides, we gathered uh, friends from around the globe, from about 100 countries gathered together in Turkey for equipping. Okay, to be equipped to create movements of disciple-making uh, back in their countries and other surrounding countries. And so these slides are just me with some of the leaders that are there. These are some of our leaders from Africa. The guy in the middle there, um, uh, the, the big group is the African team uh, that you saw. And the, the guy that's in the middle there is, is uh, on our leadership team uh, for our ministry. And in this next picture here, uh, you'll see uh, some of our team uh, from from Asia, and uh, the, uh, the good-looking uh, woman uh, to my side there, that's my, that's my wife. I've got great taste. I always say, I have great taste in women, but she has poor taste in men, okay? Um, but hey, we're together. We've been married for 36 years. She's been a great blessing and, and uh, co-laborer in, in the work that God's called us to. Um, and then that, that uh, next picture there is of uh, 300 leaders uh, from uh, five different continents that were there with us together to, to, to do this equipping. Now, the, the way we equip, what we do is we do training, coaching, and mentoring. We train for understanding, so that could be in a classroom, could be in a setting like this this morning, whether you're listening in online or you're, uh, uh, or, or you're sitting here in, in, the, in the auditorium this morning, but there's some teaching, okay? So we, we teach for understanding, and then we coach for implementation, and that's where we come alongside ministry leaders, whether they're pastors or lay leaders, and we coach them to implement the principles from the life of Christ and how Jesus created disciple-making movements. And then we mentor them for multiplication. So then we teach them once the model is there, they're living it out in their local uh, context, now we mentor them to go and to multiply that. And so I've had the opportunity, the privilege to travel around the world and uh, to share uh, the good news and to teach people how to share the good news with others. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at Matthew 28, which is a passage that uh, talk, you know, that is uh, maybe familiar with a lot of us. Um, and uh, in Matthew 28, often referred to as the Great Commission, uh, this passage sums up Jesus' mission for us as a church. God gives this to his people uh, as the church, whether we're individuals, teenagers, adults, 
the corporate body, this is the mission that he gives us to live out, individually and corporately. And it's what my ministry is about. Now, as a teenager at the age of 15, um, I, I remember sensing that there was something missing in my life. I remember sensing that uh, there was something that wasn't there. I, and I was raised to go to church. I was, I was raised to, to pray, um, you know, pray when there's important decisions being made, pray before meals, um, uh, pray bef- uh, before you go to sleep at night. I learned that scary prayer, Not now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep if I should die before I wake. I pray the Lord my soul to take. And I'm like, man, this is a terrifying prayer. Um, but I learned it as a kid. Okay, so I, I, knew, I knew about God and I knew how to pray, but I actually didn't, I didn't know him in a personal way. Um, I, you know, I had the teachings. I went to catechism at, at, at the church that I attended. My parents sent me there, my mom specifically. I went to Catholic prep school. Uh, and uh, attended that for, for four years. But at the age of 15, I started attending a church with my mom that talked about having a personal relationship with God. And it was the first time I ever heard that you could have a personal relationship with Jesus, that you could know him, and that he wanted you to follow him. And there was a youth leader in that church that explained these things to me and took me under his wing. And, and I distinctly remember being in the front seat. His name was Joey. Okay, and I remember being in the front seat of Joey's car after having dinner with his family, and he was going to take me home, and he shared the good news of the gospel with me, and a light bulb went on. I was like, wow, I want this for my life. And I remember that moment in September of 1981. I'm dating myself. I'm old, okay? Um, But in September of 1981, I asked Jesus into my life, and I said, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to follow you with my life. And, I mean, I was so excited. I started reading the scriptures and memorizing and, and, uh, and spending time with, with others that were trying to follow him and learning about what it meant to be his follower. And then I started telling people. And, and I, I was telling my, my peers at school and uh, people in my neighborhood and my family, uh, my aunts and uncles and my cousins about, about this Jesus. And, and they all knew the, knew the name Jesus, okay, and they knew a little bit about him, but but they hadn't heard how to follow him and that he wanted a relationship with him. So I'm sharing that. And I was sharing with the priest in my school. With, I remember talking to Father Bradley in, in a religious class and telling him about how Jesus wants a personal relationship with us and quoting scripture and just great conversations. I was excited. I had this insatiable desire to grow in that relationship with God and to share it with other people. That was my junior year in high school. Before that, I didn't know the good news. I didn't know about Jesus. I heard little glimpses and things, but it wasn't until some people actually took time that were Christians to come alongside me and to teach me about him and what it meant to follow him that I actually had the opportunity to do it. Before that, I didn't do it because, I mean, essentially because nobody was telling me. Nobody was telling me about him. And as I travel around the world, there there are so many people um, around the world, but there's so many people in Harrisburg that, that don't know the good news of the gospel just because nobody's telling them. And, and they might even have a Christian that lives next door, okay? It might be you or me, but are we taking the opportunity to tell them? I learned that at age 15 and 16 when I came to faith. But 1 John 2.6 says this. It says, whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now John's saying this, if, if, we, if we say, if we're testifying to being a Christian, abiding in him, 
okay, then that means that we ought to walk in the same way Jesus walked. Being a Christian isn't just saying a prayer or saying the right things. It's, it's a way of life. We start following him. He's calling us to follow him, okay? And so, but, but what does following him entail? How do you go about walking as Jesus walked? How do you go about walking in the same way as Jesus? Well, if we go to the Gospels and we study his life, we'll discover the answer. But, but don't just go to the Gospels and, and look to the Gospels for, uh, for his methods and what he did. So, you know, he healed the sick and he, he cared for uh, the lepers and, and, and he rose the dead and he cared for the marginalized. I mean, some of his methods or his teachings, okay? We should look at his methods and his teachings, okay? Uh, and his message, the things that he, that he taught about, okay? Go beyond his methods and his message and look at his way of life. Look at his, his character, okay? The fruits of the Spirit in his life. And then also look at his priorities, his priority and how he invested his time into relationships, a, a relationship with his heavenly Father, Right? but also a relationship with those around him, with his family and friends, and, and how he called, uh, he called people early on to follow him and be his disciples. Look, look deeper than just the message and the methods. And, and if you study his life and his ministry in a chronological manner, take the Gospels and look at them chronologically, then you'll begin to discover an intentional pattern, an intentional pattern how Jesus walked and did ministry and how he created this movement that, that we're a part of today. There, there's a strategy in how he taught his first followers to live the life that he calls us to live today. And, and there's a way that he intentionally walked in mission with his father. And he calls us to that same mission today. In fact, there are five times that Jesus gives his followers, at least Five times recorded, it probably happened, I'm guessing it happened a lot more than that, but at least five times where he gives this mission to his followers and he gives it to us today. And this passage in Matthew 28 is one of those places where he summarizes what the mission is that he's given us, this mandate to how we're to live our lives, what we're supposed to be about as his followers. And in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, he calls his disciples to this mission to seek to serve God and to glorify him. Four other recordings of that uh, in the other Gospels and in the book of Acts. It's, it, it's interesting. Five times recorded. That must mean that it was important enough to be, it was, it was, this was important enough that the different Gospel writers recorded it, and it's in the book of Acts too, and it was important enough that Jesus repeated it time and time again. It was a recurring teaching to his disciples. So it must be important for us today, right? And, and I know many of us have heard Dozens of, of sermons on this. So, you know, uh, my prayer for you, though, is this. If you've heard those sermons before, my prayer is that God would open our hearts, he'd open our minds to, to listen to his word once more again, his living word, and allow it to speak to us, that it allowed to speak to me and to speak to you. And maybe even teach us something new or, or, or refresh our heart for the mission that he's calling us to, the mission that he's given us the opportunity to be a part and have a, a deeper passion for. And so we're going to observe um, what following Jesus in mission looks like according to what we see in this, this passage of Matthew 28, what, what it looks like to walk 
is Jesus' walk, the call, that, the walk that he calls us to. Now, let me say this also. Oftentimes we know, we know a lot. I know a lot about the Bible, okay? We, we, a lot of us know, whether you're listening in online or you're sitting here today, we know a lot about the Bible, but it's not enough just to know about it. We're, he's calling us to live and to obey. It's two very different things, to know about and to follow, or know about and live. It, it, you know, it's kind of like... Um, uh, we, we all know, uh, what, how, you know what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat, right? We know what healthy eating looks like. I was with my daughter Ariana yesterday, and we walked by duck donuts. And I'm like, I've never had a duck donut. And she's like, they're fresh. They're warm when you get them. I'm like, well, maybe the Spirit of God is telling me that I need a duck donut. No. So we go in, and we have a donut. Okay, I had a stomachache. It was good, but I had a stomachache after that. I know they're not good for you. Occasionally, it's okay, right? But if we ate duck donuts all the time, we'd be in trouble. And we know that we're supposed to exercise and not be latent and, and sedentary. We need to get up and move around. And we know that you need to have proper sleep, right? If, if you don't get proper sleep, then, then what happens? Uh, you... For me, I get grouchy and I get everything else, you know, but it's not good for you. And we, and we know, that it, you know that you shouldn't be worrying and be stressed out over things. The, the pro- proverb says that worry cannot add a single day to our lives, okay? But yet, uh, do I eat duck donuts occasionally? That was the first time, but I've eaten other ones, okay? Um, do, do I get all the exercise I need all the time? Do I get sleep all the time? Do I ever worry? And so, you know, when we look at the Gospels and we look at the life of Christ, he's calling us not just uh, to believe things, but he's calling us to, to live and to follow him. And so this Matthew account of his mission goes like this. Let's, let's read it together, and it's on the screen for you. In uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 and following, it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so Jesus gives, in this passage, when we look at it, Jesus gives one primary, one primary command at the core of this passage, of this mission. It's the mission of every Christian. We're, this is how we, glor- we glorify God by making disciples. Go make disciples. That's the main command, make disciples. Now, we should ask ourselves, what is a disciple? Okay, good question. Glad you asked it. What, it's what we're to make, okay? So we should know, what, we're not baking cakes this afternoon, we're making disciples, okay, in this passage. My wife's home baking cakes for a Super Bowl party, though, okay? So, um, but the, the Greek word for disciple is the word mathetes, and it generally refers to a student or an apprentice uh, under, under, a, uh, under a teacher, okay? Uh, under a teacher or a religious teacher or a philosopher, so you're an apprentice, or you're a student, or you're a follower. That's what it referred to in the ancient world. That's what it was most often associated with. Now, there are about 260 times in the New Testament where the word mathetes, the Greek word here, disciple, is used. And it's only used in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. It's a term that's a synonym with the New Testament term Christian, which actually only occurs a handful of times in the Bible. 
You can see in Acts chapter 11, Acts 26, 1 Peter 4. To be a disciple, in other words, um, is it means that you follow Jesus. Authentic Christians follow as disciples of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. That's what a Christian is. It's more than, it's more than uh, belief. It's more than just things bouncing around between the neuropaths in our brains, okay? It's something that becomes a lifestyle where we take on his character and his priorities. And the command, make disciples, implies that, y- that you and I are supposed to be helping others become students or apprentices or followers of Jesus, helping them emulate his character and his priorities. His character, the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, Galatians chapter 5. His priorities can be summed up in the creed that he gives us, okay, in the great commandment in, in, in John 22 where he says to, he tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, Love compels us in disciple-making. It compels us in making disciples who make disciples. That's what it's about. Now, a couple of years ago, uh, Teresa and I had the opportunity to be with uh, some of our Latino leaders in Latin America, actually where Gilbert is this week in Costa Rica. And uh, we, we went to this training center, and we were asked to come down and do some equipping with the leaders. And, and, uh, and uh, they were doing, they were uh, teaching each other as well, okay? So we're collaborating, uh, teaching, and, and uh, so we spent time there about 30 years ago, and uh, the interesting, I mean, it was about six years ago, but 30 years ago, there was a young couple from Chicago named Mark and Karen Edwards that felt called to go, to move to Costa Rica. They were, they were in youth ministry at a church in the, the suburbs of Chicago, and they felt called to move to, to Costa Rica and work with the young people at one church. And so they did that, okay? So we're, here we are a couple of years ago, and we're seeing the, the fruits of the labor, and we're meeting some of their leaders. If you fast forward to when we're there, or fast forward to today, okay, if Gilbert goes to that training center and meets and asks, you know, what's going on, you'll find that there are over 100 um, people that came to faith in Christ there that then went out and became missionaries all over Latin America to 16 countries in Latin America to the Middle East to Spain and, and thousands of churches that have been impacted um, by their ministry in Latin America starting in Costa Rica. It started just with this young couple that were faithfully following Jesus inviting people over into their living room daily to, uh, to disciple them and teach them what it means to follow Jesus and then walk with them. Now, most Christians, okay, that, they understood the call, but most Christians today in, in the West, in the Western world, uh, they, they don't live out the call. We don't live out the call. We forget it. Now, I don't mean that they don't become missionaries. Okay, God's not calling us all to become missionaries and move to a foreign land. What, land. what I mean is that most Christians don't live out the priority of the Great Commission or making disciples and make disciples just in, in their neighborhood, in their homes, at their, in, at their work. They, they, they just, we, we tend to just go to church and go to life groups, small groups, home churches, uh, Sunday school, these different things. But oftentimes, American churches, um, we, we, we hire people we call pastors or ministers to do the work of the going. And yet... When we read the Gospels, we see that this passage, we see that the, the call here, the mission of God to his people is not just for, for hired guns, okay? It's not just for the pastors. It's for all of us that, that say, 
we're Christians, to testify that we want to follow Jesus. We're all called to this. We're all called to this, this life. Ephesians 4 says that God gave some to be apostles, some to be uh, teachers, and some to be prophets, so that the man of God and the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped. And so, Gilbert, your pastor, his, the call in his life is to be a pastor and to shepherd you. Part of that call is to equip you to share the gospel and disciple and to equip others to do the same in your neighborhoods and at your work. And then the other part of his call is to do that himself with his neighbors and with his friends and where he goes to get a coffee or gets groceries. We're all called to that same thing. Yet there's so many churches and pastors. I know Gilbert gets it because we talk about it all the time. And I've seen it in his life. But there are so many churches and pastors that don't get it. And we wonder why so many churches across North America, how much, so many communities are struggling. Why so many communities aren't being transformed by the good news. What would happen? What would happen if, if more of our churches across North America, if more churches in Harrisburg would not just come together on Sunday morning, but that we would, we would have an understanding and awareness and a, 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 of the call that God has on us, not just to come together, come together, but then go out. Be the church gathered, but then be the church scattered too. Go out to the world and share the good news. What would happen if, if more of us did that and we actually lived in community with the people around us and lived out the hope of Christ in our communities? I mean, Harrisburg desperately needs that. Harrisburg desperately needs uh, Christians, people that are walking as Jesus walked that will love their communities and love their neighbors and love their coworkers and love students in their classes and, and love uh, pe the people that serve them coffee at Starbucks. Our community desperately needs that. I have a friend named Ben. Um, uh, Ben's a, ben was a banker in Calcutta. And uh, he felt called to start making disciples and make disciples as a as a young banker, and uh, he's a dynamic communicator. At, uh, long and short, he started doing that and started a church in Calcutta. The church grew very quickly, and then, and then he was like, this is not what God called me to do. He called me to go make disciples, make disciples, not lead a church. And So he gave the church to some of the leaders, and then he went from village to village, just sharing the gospel and teaching people how to share the gospel and, and to do likewise. Today, Ben, a banker, 25 years later, uh, ben is leading a, a house church movement of over 51,000 house churches. It all started with a banker. 51 house churches, 51,000 house churches across India and Asia that started with one person saying, I'm going to be faithful to it. We're, we're all, he, here's, here's the truth of the matter. We're all disciples, okay? Everybody, your neighbors, your non-Christian neighbors are disciples. We're all disciples, and we're all making disciples, okay? We're, we're disciples of something or someone. It may not be Jesus, okay? But we're disciples of something or someone. The question isn't whether we're disciples. It's, it's what are we disciples of or who are we disciples of? And, and then the other question is, what are we making disciples or who are we making people and disciples of? And so you're a parent or you're a grandparent, let's say. What, what are you helping your kids or your grandparents become disciples of or who? Is it uh, to make, make money and get a good education? Those are good things. But is that what you want them to be a disciple of? Is that it? Is that the heart of it? 
Or are, you te- are we teaching them to be disciples of Jesus, to follow Jesus in their education, to follow Jesus in, in, in their work, and to, to live and know that they're at, wherever they go and whatever you do, that God's calling us all on mission to be his disciples. Now, let's, let's look at the passage here. I've been talking a lot, but let's look, let's look at the scriptures here. In, in, uh, it says that, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now, the specific mountain isn't mentioned in the passage here, right? It doesn't, it doesn't identify it. I think it's Mount Erbel, like this picture on the screen here. I think it's Mount Erbel, which is in the southwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, I think it's that because that's where the disciples came from. They had spent time there in that region with him. And if you go to, if you go to Mount Erbel and you stand up there, I can imagine Jesus being up there with the disciples. This is after his resurrection, and he's up there with, with the disciples, and, and he's saying, go, go to all the nations. And if you stand on Mount Arbel, if you look to the east, you'll see Asia. Okay, if you look to the west, you'll see the Mediterranean, Israel and the Mediterranean. You look to the north, you'll see Europe. If you look to the south, you'll see Africa. And so the vantage point up there on Mount Arbel, there's nothing blocking it. You can see the world. From there, on a clear day, you can see, you literally can see into several countries from Mount Arbel. And so I imagine Jesus being up there, and he's, he's speaking these words, this mission to the disciples, and a mission that he gives us. The theme of mountains, by the way, is th- there's a theme of mountains throughout the book of Matthew. You could study mount- mountains here. But uh, then it says in verse 17 that those that are there, they worshiped him. And, and they see the risen Jesus... And they worship him. He was dead and now he's alive. And worship is a natural response to seeing, you know, your Savior alive again. Okay, there's hope and there's worship. But then it says some doubted. Some doubted. So they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, now this shouldn't be surprising considering the disciples. If, again, if you look at the scriptures chronologically, there's a story in Luke chapter 24 where uh, some of the disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus, okay? And Jesus kind of comes alongside them. Hey, what are you guys talking about? And, and they, they're kind of sharing the story of this Jesus. Where have you been, dude? You know, you don't know what I'm talking about. And, it, and they don't recognize him. And then later on in, in, uh, be, before this passage as well, there's a time when Jesus is, he's, uh, he's sitting on the, the Sea of Galilee on the shore in the sand there, and he's, he's stirring up the embers, and he's cooking some fish and some bread. He's having a little... Does anybody else eat um, fish for breakfast? Okay, they, they do in that area. I've had fish for breakfast. It's good, okay? But he's making fish and, and bread for breakfast, and the disciples are out in the boat. He's like, hey, how's it going? You catching any fish? And they don't recognize him again. So for them not to recognize him here or for them to doubt makes sense. But it's interesting to speculate why, okay, why Matthew includes the reference to doubting. Why would he include that? I mean, we're talking about the disciples here of Jesus, right? But they're doubting. And there's no specific uh, resolution to the doubt. And there's no accounts of who it is doubting. Just some of the disciples, some were doubting. No specifics. It doesn't really give us a lot of detail, if the doubt subsided or, or what. But why? why? Why does he include the doubts? Well, I think it's because Matthew 
Matthew is a shepherd. He's got, a, he's got like a pastoral heart. He cares about people. And I think he wants, he wants us and he wants his readers to, to listen in, to hear, and to, to take heart and to have courage in our own lives where we, maybe we waffle between worship and doubt. And if we're honest, most of us have our moments drifting between worship and doubt. It's, it's a part of being human, and it's a part of being a follower of Jesus even. And Matthew says, take heart. What's that mean? Well, the early, the early disciples, okay, these people that have been following Jesus and knew him, followed him for three and a half years. They lived with him. They walked with him. They did life together. The, these guys, they weren't, and the, and the women that were with him there too, they weren't, they weren't superhumans. They were ordinary people. The Great Commission wasn't given to spiritual giants, in other words. It was given to ordinary, devoted, but failure-prone followers. Flawed, broken people. People like me, and, and, and maybe you, I don't know you well, but for me, I can speak, I'm a flawed, broken person. And so, so for me, when I read this, I just say, these people were just like me. The people he's talking to on, on Mount Arabella or whatever the mountain was are people that are just like me. And, and so it says, don't lose heart. He wants to use ordinary people like you and me to, to live out the Great Commission. This call is for, for us, ordinary people. Isn't that encouraging? He can use people that waffle between worship and doubt. Jesus didn't reject them in their doubts. Our Savior doesn't break the bruised reed. Okay? He embraces us, and he works through us in our doubts and our fears and, and our flaws. Amen? Yeah. Tim Keller, uh, former pastor of Redeemer in New York, uh, speaking of doubt, says this. He says about this passage specifically, he says, that is a remarkable admission here is the author of an early Christian document telling us that some of the founders of Christianity couldn't believe the miracle of the resurrection even when they were looking straight at him with their eyes and touching him with their hands. There's no other reason for this to be in the account unless it really happened. You see, it begs, when we read this, it begs for the authenticity of, of the gospel of this news. The, the, the writer of the book of Matthew, he doesn't try to hide the vulnerability and the brokenness of the people, the, the humanness of the people that are following Jesus. And so it says to us, take heart. We can do this. We can be a part of this. Ordinary people. And then in verse 18, Jesus came up and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The risen, the risen Lord, the risen Jesus, okay? He's without money. He's without, uh, he's without government office. He's without an army. He's charging this original band of followers and us today, probably a group of 500 people, men and women in that day, to go out and to preach the word. Yeah, I did say 500. This isn't 12 like sometimes we think about in the Broadway movie or the movies on TV, Right? We can read through the scriptures and we can surmise that there were probably about 500 in the crowd. Pentecost hasn't happened yet. The Holy Spirit hasn't, hasn't come down yet. But they're being sent out with this dynamic faith-ruling 
power and this call from Jesus from the mountain. And as, as we read the Gospels and we read, read history, we find out that they went out, that they looked out and they saw, you know, they could go into Europe and go into Asia and go into Africa and go in, across Israel and across the Mediterranean. They, they, could, they visualized it, but they did it. And it says, all authority. God the Father has given all authority to Jesus. Philippians 2 9 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Jesus has authority over death. He has authority over sin. He has authority over hell. And he, he's the anointed high priest who alone can give us forgiveness and give us new life. He's the Savior who alone can give eternal life. He's the name above every name. Okay, Jews, Jews in this time, first century Jews, wouldn't say the name, okay, of God. They wouldn't say Yahweh. They would, they would refer to him as the name above every name. And so 1 John 5, 12 says, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. You want life? Have the sun. There, there's, there's no life outside. There's no life without the sun. He's the life giver. And so, friends, it's impossible. It's impossible to think too highly of Jesus. He has full reign over the universe. He has all authority that's been given to him. He's conquered death and sin. He's conquered our greatest foes. And he has, it says here, okay, in our passage today, that he has all authority. And, and so what are the implications for us when we're talking about this mission? Well, when it comes to Jesus giving you and me the commission of making disciples, this life assignment, so to speak, maybe you'd say, uh, you know, you're asked to lead a small group or a, a, house, a house group by Gilbert or some friends and like, oh, I I don't really, I don't know a lot of the Bible. I'm nervous. I don't like talking in front of people. Well, the one who has all authority, authority over the universe, authority over death and sin, he's sending you. He's calling you. You go in his authority. Or, or you're asked to help out with youth ministry and, and work with teens or, or work, work in the children's ministry. You say, ah, I don't really know how to work with kids. I don't know how to work with youth. I'm, I, get, they, I get nervous around them. They give me the eebie-jeebies. But the one that has all authority is sending you. You can have confidence. Or, or, you know, you have a friend at work that doesn't know Jesus, and they ask you, they say, I, you go to that church exponential. I, I've heard of that church. Can, you know, what do you teach there? And you're like, ooh, I don't want to talk about my faith here. This is awkward. I might mess things up. And you, you get fearful to talk about it whether it's school or whatever, maybe you think that in your head and then you think back to this where the one that has all authority sends you. See, he's the one that's sending us. He sends us in his authority. He gives us his spirit to guide us and direct us. Don't, don't miss the scope of this. Jesus has all authority and he sends you and me to be his disciples to the nations and in his authority, starting in our Jerusalem, starting in our neighborhood, starting in our communities. The Great Commission basks in the floodgates of Jesus' authority, all authority. That's the one that sends us. 
Now, now maybe, you're, maybe you're listening in today, okay, or you're sitting here, and you've heard these things many times before, um, that Jesus has all authority. He's the God of the universe. He's the God of heaven, the God of earth. And yet you, just, you say to yourself, yeah, but why is there so much evil? Why is there so much corruption? Why is there so much hurt and pain in the world? And, and folks, I've, I've traveled. I've been on every continent and seen some of these things, just horrific things. Why are there so many wars going on today? Why can't God end the things that are going on in Ukraine and in the Middle East and this place and that place? And, you know, or the, or the, the suffering, the lack of food. And those are, I think those are good questions to ask. Why is there so much evil in the world? I like what N.T. Wright says. Um, He's a scholar in the UK and New Testament scholar. He says this. He says, people get very puzzled by the claim that Jesus is already ruling the world. In other words, he has all authority. He's the boss, right? Until they see what is in fact being said. The claim is not that the world is already completed as Jesus intends it to be. The claim is that he is working to take it from where it was under the rule, not only of death, but of corruption and greed and every kind of wickedness, and to bring it by slow means and quick under the rule of his life, giving love. And catch this. And how is he doing this? Here's the profound truth, N.T. Wright says. He wants to do it through us, his followers. The project only goes forward insofar as Jesus' agents, the people he has commissioned, are taking it forward. Wow. You see, we are his plan. You want to see transformation in the world. You want to see evil end. You want to see uh, famines end. You want to see the brokenness turn into healing. He's calling us to go out and live it out. And then he goes on in, in, in verse 19 in the passage, and he describes to us how we go about this, the authority he gives us, okay, to go out and make disciples. He describes how to make disciples, and it says that we're to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Three words describe, three verbs describe how we're to go about making disciples. The first one, therefore, go. Now, go is a new idea at this point. If we think New Testament, think first century here, it's a new idea to the people of God, okay? In the past in the scriptures, uh, men and women were, were welcome to, to, to go to, they came to Jerusalem, okay? But now the people of God are told to go to their neighbors and, and beyond, to every nation, to go out. Before it's come to Jerusalem, Now it's go. It's no longer a come to the temple. Now it's go to the world. Okay? We're not called to wait for people to come into our church. We're to go out as the church to them. That's the call. We we are the temple of God going out. The, The word go here, it brings the idea of intentionally, intentionally engaging with our neighbors and sharing in living out the good news with our family and our coworkers and our community and the world. It brings to the Great Commission the practice of what gets labeled evangelism, euangelion, bringing the good news to people. But oftentimes, oftentimes Christians that I talk to, friends, Christian friends, will tell me, just share in their hearts, they'll say, I don't know how to share my faith, and I don't really have the gift of evangelism. 
But the truth is that each of us, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God in you, and God is changing you, and He's working in your life, and He's giving you a story. And I'd say start with a story. Start sharing about what Jesus means to you and what he's doing in your life and how you're experiencing him. You, you don't need to have all sorts of training to share your story. I mean, look at the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, this lady meets Jesus in Samaria, and he, he tells her the truth of her life and everything. They have an interaction, and she's like enlightened, and she, she's wowed by meeting Jesus, and immediately she goes back into the village and says, you won't believe who I just met. I met the Messiah, and then the crowd comes, and they gather, and Jesus hangs out with them. She, she, didn't, go through any, she didn't go through Gilbert's like evangelism classes or discipleship classes, okay? She's like right away sharing the good news of Jesus with her neighbors. And that's what call, God calls us to do. Don't be afraid. I mean, we're told the Spirit is with us, too, when we do it. So just share the story. And sure, go ahead and you know, read books on how to share your faith and, and go to the, a class if there's a class, but don't wait until you know enough. You know enough now just to share what God's doing in you. Share the hope that's in you. So that's the first word, go. The second, the second verb here that describes making disciples is the word baptize, baptizing them, okay? And the, the Greek word for uh, baptize here, the one that's used is the word baptizo, and it's a, it was an ancient Greek word that was used to signify in the textile industry to signify the dyeing of a garment. And so if we had a big vat, let's say, of blue dye sitting here, and uh, we take a white shirt and we dip it into the vat, we pull it up out, what color is it? What color? It's blue, it's blue. Any doubt on it being blue? It's not red, it's not pink, it's not orange. Okay, it's blue, okay? Because this, this vat of, this been baptizo, it's been transformed, okay? It went from white to blue, Okay, that's what happens. And, and that's what baptism signifies in the Great Commission. Baptizing marks the initial point of conversion where you go from being white to blue, okay? And, and where you, you're, starting to, you're starting to help a person get established in their, their new faith and get rooted in that faith and grow in that faith and learn what it means to follow Jesus now to, as their baptizo, gospel trans, transformation. And then the third word, the third verb, so you got go, baptize. The third one is teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. Teach. Everything he's commanded must be passed on to the very end of the age, it says. Okay, Passing on the command in the passage here specifically of making disciples and his strategy, all that surrounds how we make disciples, how we share the good news, his character and his priorities, teaching those around us how to follow him, okay, to go, how to come into a relationship with him, and how to follow him, how to grow in that relationship. Teaching them, teaching our skeptic friends, okay? By going to our skeptic friends and sharing the good news with them. Discipling, okay, or baptizo, rooting and establishing our Christian friends in the faith. That's what he's talking about here. Now, when I, when I first was a pastor in Shippensburg, I, I was a youth pastor, and, and uh a group of about a dozen students that were in the, in the ministry. And I remember equipping a few of them that were responsive, saying it, that they wanted to know how to share their faith. We equipped them to do it, and we did this big event. We had, I don't know, 50, 100 teenagers come out, and uh, we, we played a bunch of silly games and did different things. And then I shared the gospel. Somebody shared their story. And then, uh, and then I asked a question, okay? And I just said, hey, we're going to have pizza now, and, 
just go talk to your friends and, and uh, talk about this question. I don't remember what the question was, but it, it could be anything related to the gospel. So just take it like, uh, when you die someday, do you know where you're going? Um, and so we gave that question, and one of our students, Chris, had brought his friend Casey. And uh, Chris, Chris uh, had a desire to share his faith with his friends. He's really nervous, but... Uh, but he wanted to share his faith. And so it's time for pizza and time to answer that question. And as they walk off to get pizza, Casey, the one that wasn't a follower of Christ yet, okay, the non-Christian, turns to, to Chris and says, hey, do you know where you're going when you die, Chris? And Chris is like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah I, I do. And the non-Christian, okay, started the conversation with a Christian. Okay, that's the point. And so then Chris shared with his friend Casey about how to have a relationship with God, how to follow God, and long and short of it, Casey became a Christian that night. He started following Jesus. About a month later, Casey's at, at, at our church, and we have a sharing time, and Casey stands up and says, I want to do for somebody else what Chris did for me. I want to share the good news. I want to help a friend come to faith in Christ. And so in the coming weeks, Casey brings his friend Brian to our youth ministry, shares the gospel with his friend Brian. Brian says, I want to follow Jesus and uh, super excited, he's, and he's like, I'm, I'm becoming a Christian too, I want to do this, and, and, uh, and so Casey and Brian leave the church that night, they're walking to Brian's house, they walk into Brian's living room, his sister's sitting on the sofa, and Brian's like, you wouldn't believe what Casey just shared with me, he just told me that you could have a relationship with, with Jesus, and here's how you do it, and he sat down and he walked his sister Aaron through what he just heard minutes before, okay, and Aaron's like, I want this too, I, I want to become a Christian too. And so Brian, the brand new 15-minute Christian, okay, and Casey sh share the gospel with Aaron. Aaron prays and says, I want to follow Jesus too. And within a matter of a couple months, we had five generations of Christians, okay? Teenagers that were terrified, had their doubts, insecurities, okay? But they stepped out in faith and God used them to lead their friends to Christ. And, and Jesus created a movement. And, and, and the, a lot of those young people today, they're serving Jesus today. They're just doctors, as lawyers, as pastors, as carpenters in different roles, vocationally in ministry and sometimes uh, volunteering in ministry. You know, he, hear this, folks. The death and resurrection of Jesus are not the end of the gospel. That's not, it's not where we close Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some Christians take the good news for themselves, okay? They hear about the death and resurrection and, ah, oh, I can have a relationship with Jesus and they close the book. But it doesn't end there. It ends with this commission to all of us. All of us as disciples to carry on the mission, to share the mission, to share the mission in the light of the cross and the empty tomb. We're not just to trust him as our savior. We're to go and be disciple makers. John 17 Four, Jesus, he's praying in his high priestly prayer. In John 17, four, it says this, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, let me ask you the question. What is the work that God gave him to do? Well, this is John 17, okay? So this is a trick question, okay, for maybe, okay? Uh, this is before he's died on the cross for our sins. And yet he's saying, 
I've, I've accomplished the work you gave me to do. Well, if you read the, the chapters leading up to this and you look at what's going on with the disciples, the disciples are out doing ministry. They're making disciples and are making disciples. And then Jesus prays to the Father and says, you know, I've accomplished the work you gave me to do. I've created, we're creating a movement. People are taking the work. When I leave the scene, there are going to be others that are going to carry it on. That's the call. That's what we're to be about. Our imparting our lives into others and making disciples and make disciples, continuing the work. So it doesn't matter. Like in the church, I planted churches in Philadelphia and we used to joke and say, if Mike, if Mike gets uh, hit by a, a bus this afternoon, will the church go on? And said, it better, okay, because I'm, it's, not, it's not the church of Mike, okay? It's, it's, the, it's the church of God's people and we're supposed, supposed to all be going out and making disciples and make disciples, you and I are God's plan for continuing to spread the good news. Jesus gets excited and says to the Father, I've completed the work when we're doing the work. And, and it, look at joy. Look at the times that Jesus is filled with joy in the Gospels. You know when he's filled with joy? When his people are doing the work of the ministry. Uh, I, I'll move on. Uh, verse 20 says this, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Surely literally means look. And it's, it's the second command, a secondary command in the passage. I am with you. God is with us. And the, the God is with us in the Old Testament with the, with the, with the pillar of, of fire and the, and the clouds, okay? The God that's with us in the Old Testament is now Jesus with us in the New Testament. Yahweh is with his people in Jesus today. And so I skipped one word here, and that's this word, nation. What does that word mean? Well, it's important. It refers to a distinct people group or a unique people group. Why is this important? Because it implies that you and I, each of us, have a personal nation that we're called to share to. And so my wife, Teresa, she has a nation of people that God has called her to. It says to go to all nations, go to, to Sam's nation and Gilbert's nation and Teresa's nation and Mike's nation. Each one of us has a different nation. They overlap, okay? We have some mutual friends. We have the same neighbors. We live in the same house, sleep in the same bed, okay? But she, she works in a different part of Philadelphia than where I office. And so we have some different relationships. We each have a unique nation that God has called us to. It's the unique call of God on our lives. One time I was teaching about this, about this call that God has for you to reach your nation. And uh, there was a young girl that was sitting there. And I, and I made a statement like this. I said, when you walk, when you leave this room and tomorrow you walk into your school or you walk into your work, when you walk into your home, when you walk into that room as a Christian, hope enters that room. The light of God enters that room. The good news, Jesus enters that room. The way to find Jesus is in that room. And this, this young girl, she texted me the next day when she walked into her school, and she said this. She said, when I walked into my school today, I imagined Jesus walking into school with me. And I realized that hope entered my high school campus, that the gospel was there, that the hope of Christ was there, that the light of God was there, and it totally changed my perspective. And this is true of you and me. When we, when we leave this place today, when we stop listening online and we go out and we get that Starbucks coffee or we spend time in the living room or we go to work tomorrow, 
When we walk into that place, if you have a relationship with Jesus, then hope enters that room. Life enters that room. The gospel enters that room. An opportunity for lives to be changed. And this is true of each of us. And so we go there in season and out of season, ready to give, like 1 Peter says, to give a reason for the hope that's within us. And one last thought. Do we have any attorneys that are, any attorneys listening today or in the room? It's interesting because when you look at this passage, Matthew 28 is, is set up like an ancient covenantal agreement, okay? It's written in the same format, the same outline. There's a preamble, an introduction, and then there's a command, a stipulation, and then there's a promise, okay? That's how, how uh, covenants were written in the day. A preamble, the introduction is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, okay? So that's the preamble, the introduction. God, Jesus has all authority. And then there's a command or stipulation. Go, baptize, teach, make disciples of all nations. And then there's a promise. I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, why is this important to note? Because the presence of God is covenantal here. I am, the, I am with you as you go and you baptize and you teach. It's because of our going and baptizing and teaching that Jesus says, I will be with you. In other words, you can't divorce the promise from the stipulation. There's no presence without living out the command. It's covenantal. And so the precondition for our enjoying the presence of God in this, in this text here, okay, is, is as we go and we baptize and we teach as we're making disciples. And so we, we can't invert the biblical order and say, well, when God gives me the courage, then I'll tell my sister about Jesus. He says, go. Start talking. Share the hope of Christ with that person. And when you do, he says, and I will be with you. He's with us when we share. He promises that. It's the going church that enjoys the presence of God, is what I read here in Matthew chapter 28. Disciple making is a faith walk that brings his presence for his people. And so, exponential church, friends, Go, baptize, teach, make disciples. He sends you in his power with all authority in his victory over death and sin. And he gives us this commission, this call to make disciples and make disciples. And he promises his presence with us as we go. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we, I, I just want to thank you for this church. I thank you for your people here, for brothers and sisters in Christ that, that desire to serve you to know you, to help others know you. And I just pray that you would bless them this day. And I pray that you would work through them this day, that you would remind them of the hope that we have in Christ, the call that you've given us and that you promise that as we go, as we go in faith and serve you and making disciples make disciples, you'll be with us to the end of the age. In Jesus' name, amen.